Hello, in today's show, efforts to reassure thousands of children traumatized by the fighting in Tigray, Ethiopia, the UN Health Agency announces new potential wonder drugs to fight COVID, heat waves and potentially record temperatures in the Mediterranean, and unsettling news from Afghanistan amid the lightning Taliban advance. All this and more in this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. Thanks for listening. First, the news with Katie Dartford. This is the news in brief from the United Nations. Three new candidate drugs are being tested in the latest phase of global trials to find effective treatments against COVID-19, the World Health Organization's announced. The therapies, artesanate, imatinib and infliximab, will be tested on hospitalised coronavirus patients in 52 countries under the Solidarity Plus programme. The drugs are already being used to treat other conditions. There have been more than 203 million confirmed cases of COVID-19, according to the WHO, which noted that the world hit the 200 million mark last week, just six months after infections passed 100 million. Speaking in Geneva, Agency Chief Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus underscored the critical need to find more effective and accessible COVID-19 therapeutics. He said that although oxygen, dexamethasone and IL-6 blockers were effective in treating patients, we need more for patients at all ends of the clinical spectrum, from mild to severe disease. Tedros insisted that health workers needed to be trained to use these therapeutics too. The three drugs were selected by an independent panel for their potential in reducing the risk of death in people hospitalised for COVID-19. UN weather experts said on Thursday that they're actively looking into a possible record temperature for continental Europe of 48.8 degrees Celsius, 119.8 degrees Fahrenheit in the town of Syracusa in Sicily. The World Meteorological Organization said it could not yet confirm or deny the temperature reading, which was taken on Wednesday by an agricultural forecasting service on the island and not the official Italian weather service. Only days ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a report highlighting the indisputable impact of human activity on extreme weather events. The WMO said that a rapid response team is now in contact with the Sicilian Weather Service in order to decide if this new temperature spike beats Europe's existing high of 48 degrees Celsius, 118.4 degrees Fahrenheit, which happened in Athens on the 10th of July 1977. The development comes amid fresh heatwave alerts and concerns over wildfires in Algeria, where the National Weather Service forecasts temperatures of at least 44 degrees Celsius or 111.2 degrees Fahrenheit with highs of perhaps 47 degrees Celsius or 116.6 degrees Fahrenheit. The extent of the massive forest blazes in the North African country were clearly visible from space and published on Tuesday by NASA. One image captured by the Aqua satellite showed a vast plume of smoke over northern Algeria, where more than 62,000 hectares have burnt so far this year, according to the European Forest Fire Information System. Disturbing reports of Taliban violence against communities now under their control in Afghanistan have been condemned by UN Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet. The High Commissioner for Human Rights said on Tuesday that there was fear and dread across Afghanistan, which had driven people to flee their homes. The development comes as Taliban forces reportedly took control of Ghazni City, 130 kilometres or 80 miles southwest of the capital Kabul. 
The extremist group has also been engaged in fierce fighting in Lashkagar, one of Afghanistan's biggest cities, and reportedly released prisoners from jail in Kandahar City, the country's second largest. In Geneva, UN Rights Office spokesperson Ravina Shamdasani said that people rightly feared that the Taliban would erase the human rights gains out of the past two decades as US and international forces continue to pull out of Afghanistan. We've already documented 183 civilians, um, but we do fear that this is really just the tip of the iceberg. The 1,181 who have already been documented to be injured, we don't know how many of them might succumb to their injuries. People are living in fear and dread. Women are already being you know, killed and shot for breaching rules that have been imposed on what they can wear and on where they can move without a male escort. Since the 9th of July, the UN Rights Office has confirmed almost 200 civilian fatalities in four Afghan cities. Another 1,200 have been injured. Katie Dartford, UN News. The headlines there, and this is UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. Now to this week's interview, a rare chance to hear from Tigray, where spiralling conflict that started last November between Ethiopian government forces and separatists has created a humanitarian catastrophe in the north of the country. As ever, it's the women and children who've suffered most after fleeing for their lives in many cases. Imagine the impact on young minds. On the ground to help them in Shire are mental health counsellors from the UN's migration agency, IOM. For the latest, I spoke to media officer Kay Viray from the International Organisation for Migration in Ethiopia. And here she is now. If you can imagine, um, IOM have set up a mental health and psychosocial support clinic in one of the IDP sites, an overcrowded IDP site in Shire. And next to it is an IOM fixed clinic as well, which provide um, medical consultations, other pharmacy and other services by different medical professionals. That's not only just the IDPs, but also the host communities within these IDP sites. So these are internally displaced people. Sorry, I know we do fall into acronyms at the United Nations, but uh, these are internally displaced people from the Tigray conflict. What's the latest from Shire? I'm not sure when you were last there, but what can you tell us about how many people have been displaced so far from this conflict in uh, northern Ethiopia? Yes, so based on IOM's um, latest displacement tracking matrix, or DTM as we call it, um, we do emergency site assessment and we're already on the round six. And on this latest round, which I believe covers um, the whole month of May, we have identified nearly 2 million internally displaced persons in Tigray and neighboring regions of Tigray, Amara and Afar. So that is um, from two months ago. So you can imagine that it is probably more than 2 million at the moment. And how many people is this IOM psychosocial centre catering for? It differs. Like, for example, in Shire, where we have the fixed clinic, we have hundreds of people who come every week. Sometimes our colleagues in IOM who works at the who work at the at the centre, they work seven days a week, sometimes um, from day until night because the cases are unexpected. And in some areas of northern Ethiopia, for example, in Mekele, we have mobile health um, teams and also psychosocial teams. So they're not in the actual IDP sites, but they travel from different IDP sites um, every day. And also every day they have hundreds of people coming in for different reasons, like, you know, cough, colds or pregnant ladies. That was really one of my questions. How many children are you actually helping? We're trying to get to the bottom of the extent of mental health trauma and psychosocial issues among youngsters. 
in Syria, we have helped so far 15,500 for MHPSS, which is mental health and psychosocial support. And how long has the support been there in Syria? We started in Syria in February this year. Um, as you know, the conflict broke out in November and in the beginning of the conflict, it was really hard to access a lot of the areas in the north. But as soon as we were able to, we started helping in all ways possible, including um, mental health and psychosocial support, of course. You talk about difficulties of getting access, but what are the concerns about those people you can't reach because of ongoing military conflict? We do not know exactly how many are unreachable or which areas people are in at the moment because the mobility is really hard to record. But in the areas that we have access to, we are already struggling to provide the necessary services to them. So while we are able to access them, the focus for us is really to be able to respond to those people who we can reach on a daily basis. So, um, for example, in IOM, we have over 40 million funding gap. So you can imagine how much more we will need when we are able to access and get to the places that we have never been yet. Can we talk quickly about the children that you are helping? I understand you're not a psychologist, but what's the approach to getting children to open up and to reassure them that they are in a safe space? It must be extremely difficult in in what is effectively... uh, somewhere that's not far from a conflict zone. No, Daniel, it truly is very hard. I mean, when I visited one of the sites in Shire, I can already see that some of them, you know, are very scared to see another foreign person coming to the IDP site. And, you know, we have this thing we call like an assessment fatigue from them where they always see people coming in and then eventually they leave and then they wait for something to change and nothing happens. So there is already that kind of fear from them and sometimes, you know, just fatigue just to see all these new faces coming and then going. But when I visited one of the IDP sites in Shire, I met this young, enthusiastic, energetic boy named Teddy. He is 12 years old. And that day that I met him, he was really happy and was really excited to share stories from the IDP side, from his past um, experiences as a student. But then I was told that the day before, he was completely the opposite person, um, heavily distressed by the conflict. I was able to speak to one of the parents in the site, and she told me that one day there was a truck who was unloading some heavy trucks, and it made a very loud gun-like sound, and she saw all the kids running under a table and covering their ears and crying. And to me, just I didn't see this personally, but just the idea of this happening really to me was so sad and disturbing. So you can imagine how much distress and even trauma some of these kids have to go through. I can't even imagine how hard it must be to live day by day, not knowing if you're going to have food the next day or are you going to be happy the next day or are you going to see your friends again the next day or will they be moving to another IPP site? So just I think the constant uncertainty and distress really for me has struck me the most when I met them, some of these uh, children in the IOM um, MHPSS clinic. I mean, it might sound obvious to say that conflict affects a child's development and well-being, but why exactly? What is it that conflict does to a child's emotional state? It is basically a fact for any human being, young or old, that the part of our human development is that our mental health and psychosocial well-being and social relations, they happen every day and, and they are you know linked to each other. But when there is this disruption and an uncertainty and a certain amount of fear like that comes out, for example, of a conflict and other emergencies, then you can imagine how 
these intertwining links are just suddenly disrupted and just going in different places. I mean, I am not an expert, but I can imagine that it is not easy. And to see how to find ways to cope from that, I think it really is a huge, huge challenge and sometimes overlooked in certain situations like an emergency situation. So um, in IOM, this is something that we want to fill the gap and we're not obviously, uh, we can't do it overnight. But as a start, I think it's already doing a big change to this IDPs. My thanks then to Media Officer Kay Viray from the International Organization for Migration in Ethiopia, who saw firsthand how the mental health counsellors are working round the clock to help children displaced by the Tigray conflict. For today's interview, I also spoke to the agency's mental health and psychosocial support officer, Amel Sahal, who's based in Shiray. And she told me that more than 15,500 children have been helped in Tigray since the conflict started last November. That is some achievement as I learned that it's often the case that children are unable to properly express or explain their feelings, thoughts and behaviour. And I should say that Amel explained also that children lack the basic things, a safe space, a place to play and learn, all the things that everyone needs and particularly youngsters for healthy development and mental well-being. And she appealed to the international community not to forget them. My thanks to her. Now it's time for some closing thoughts from Solange Behatege-Cortez. Hi Solange, I know this is a tough subject to land on you, but what are your takeaways? Hola Daniel. Well, uh, children have been some of the worst victims of conflicts in Tigray. Many of them have witnessed things no child should ever see. They are children harboring adult fears living in vulnerable bodies on the front lines of violence. While a normal child cries about the witch in a fairy tale, displaced children in Tigray are frightened by the sound of guns, by the shadow of a rapist. In their nightmares, they are hungry and see themselves dead. The interview reminds me of a poem by American author Emily Dickinson. She wrote, I felt a funeral in my brain, and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading, till it seemed that sense was breaking through. Daniel, I felt a funeral in my brain. I keep repeating this strong stanza, and then I think of these children in Tigray. Are they imagining their own funeral? Quite possible. Some pain doesn't leave any marks. That's why the work that our colleagues at the International Organization for Migration, IOM, are doing in mental health clinics is so crucial for the well-being of internally displaced people to help them to understand and put words to what they are experiencing. K.V. Ray, who we just heard, mentioned Teddy, a young boy, who one day seems happy, but the next can be totally disturbed and lost in uncertainty. He said that in the future he would like to be an IOM worker to help other children like him. He said, maybe someday I can even be the director of IOM. This is so powerful, Daniel. There is still life in his dreams, but I think we must be careful with children's dreams so that they are not broken. I think that all teddies of the world 
deserve to have heads that are full of dreams, not funerals. Thank you, Solange. Of course, children should have their dreams and they should be able to fulfill them. And just to return quickly to what IOM's mental health officer, Amel Sahel, told me, she said that although many children do recover from distressing events by themselves, what's really important is support from mental health counsellors early on, as this can help to prevent them developing serious psychosocial problems later on in life. She said that concerns about the many thousands of children who humanitarians still can't help in conflict-affected areas really, really bother humanitarians and the unaccompanied minors who've lost their parents too. This is a terrible situation and it clearly isn't the last time we'll be talking about Tigray. On that sobering note, it's time to wrap things up, Solange. Thank you for your thoughts as ever. And you two listeners for being with us. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please join us next time. Bye-bye for now. Ciao, Daniel. Hasta el próximo viernes. Hello again. Before I sign off, here's news of a brand new audio series you might like. It's the UN Climate Podcast, No Denying It. It features young climate changemakers from across our warming planet who show us how we can make a positive impact in our daily lives. Listen in wherever you get your podcasts every Thursday from the 26th of August. Young people from the first time in several centuries, they don't believe that their life will be better than their father's. There's no denying it. Stopping climate change is simple. We need to stop digging up fossil fuels and burning them just to get energy. Our current climate crisis is directly linked to colonization when we think of colonization as a system that's always thinking about extraction. It's hard to focus on individual rights or our wealth inequality if literally they can't breathe the air or there's fires pushing them out of their communities or their home. Quitting our addiction to fossil fuels is going to take solutions in every industry, at every scale, in every nation on the planet. It's not because of CO2. It's because we approached the planet with an unbalanced worldview. And so, of course, eventually the world became unbalanced. So if we can take some lessons and teachings from indigenous cultures, if we as individuals can hold a balanced view in our minds, then it's just a matter of time before the world balances as well. Our vision is to be able to replicate this process in every part of the world that there is sea and fishermen. It made you understand your place better, made you feel really humble and want to work a lot to preserve the well-being of this plant that has existed so many ages. No Denying It, the UN Climate Action Podcast, brings you the voices of young climate changemakers from across our warming planet. These activists, engineers, and entrepreneurs show us how we can make big changes in our homes, our jobs, where we vote and pray, and with our family and friends. I believe everyone is put in this world for a purpose. And my purpose was always to create a dent in the universe by impacting the environment space. That is my purpose. We all have to start somewhere. But the important thing is to get started. There's no denying it. Find No Denying It, the United Nations Climate Action Podcast, wherever you listen. <laughs>